You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. That's a blessing. Thank you very much uh, for that. Again, that message and song, like I said this morning. We're going to be in Nehemiah 10 tonight, Nehemiah chapter 10. And uh, as you're turning there, I just want to mention a couple of prayer requests you know, for our church family uh, to be reminded of. Uh, Mallory uh, was able to go home for a few weeks. And I don't know if you heard that or not, but God, I mean, God is good. And, and uh, there, I'm just, it's just an answer to prayer that she's been able to go home for a little bit and I don't know how long that'll be. I think they're, they're going to be letting her be at home for a couple of weeks, a few weeks perhaps. And then uh, they'll be going back for her second round of treatment here in a little bit. But to this point, you know, it's been a, good, a week of good news. And, uh, and with the bone marrow looking the way it, it did, and, and they're still uh, just, just trying to feel their way through some of that with testing and things. But I'm telling God, God has been good to them, and, and Josh and Mallory have a good spirit. And uh, I, I know that they're really enjoying sleeping in their own beds. And so uh, just to be able to, to uh, have, uh, not be in the hospital overnight, I know that's got to be a blessing to them. And so let's keep them in prayer. And this is a, it's a long road. And uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of things ahead and a lot of treatment and things like that. And, and a lot of probably tough moments. And let's not forget that they're going through that. Um, as a church family, let's support them and pray for them. Let them know we're praying for them. And then I just want to mention, I know she wouldn't want me to talk about this much, but Kath um, obviously experienced a, a, a great loss in her life, her mother passing away recently. And uh, she'll be going down this week uh, to be a part of that funeral Thursday, right, Kath, Thursday morning. And, um, and so 9 o'clock Thursday morning in Texas there, um, assuming they're, it's, you know, they're out, out that they can open the doors because they're not frozen anymore or whatever they are. It's, a, it's been a crazy week, um, and, and that's part of the delay as well. Um, but just pray for, pray for Kath and pray for the family, uh, the Sherman family. Uh, that's a, that's a, a big loss, and, a, and you know, Kath being here and them being there, it's just, not, it's, it's just difficult. And uh, Kath is such an um, important part of our church. And uh, we want to make sure that we are lifting her up before the Lord as her church family. And we love you dearly, and we appreciate you, and are praying for you very much. Nehemiah chapter 10 is where we're going to be tonight. And uh, I want to ask you to stand as we uh, look at, start beginning verse number uh, 28. Nehemiah chapter 10. This is the list we started a couple weeks ago. We looked at this list and how after the amen, it's time to make it personal. And these folks, they, they were willing to sign their name on the dotted line. They were willing to say, I, I want change. I'm committing to change. Um, I want revival enough that I'm going to put my name on this list. It started with Nehemiah and went down from there. And there were priests and, and Levites and people signing it. Everyone was on board at the same time. And I'm grateful for that. About, I think, 84 names here. And now you're going to be spending half the sermon, sermon counting them. Don't count them. Just take my word for it. About 84 names there. They got serious about revival. And they, not, they didn't just represent themselves. They represented their families. And, there, and then, after they made it personal, they made it practical. 
Meaning, they didn't just say, we want revival, and then they went their way. No, they actually started naming applications. And I want to look at the applications they named, and then also at the thought that when God moves in our hearts, it's not enough to just pray a general prayer. We need to name specific applications if we're going to see specific change. So let's look at verse 28. It says, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands under the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they claved to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his judgments and his statutes, and that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. So it's talking about intermarrying there in the land. And if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy, of it, buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So they're literally getting back to the laws that God initially established And that every seventh year, they would let the land rest. They wouldn't reap the harvest every seventh year. And and they would, would, uh, these things about the Sabbath day, these these things about selling on the Sabbath day, they weren't going to buy on the Sabbath day. Um, And every seventh year, they would also then release the debt of those that owed them debt. So they're getting back to the specifics. That's the point I'm trying to make tonight. Look at verse 32. And we made ordinances for us. To charge ourselves yearly with the third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And a lot of the rest of this is about giving. Look at it. For the showbread, for the continual meat offering, for the continual burnt offering of the Sabbath, of the new moons, for the set feasts, and for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make an atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. It took money to make those things happen. They had to have money to buy the showbread, money to buy the materials, money to buy the resources. Verse 34, and we cast the lots among the priests, the Levites and the people for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God after the houses of our fathers at times appointed year by year to burn upon the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And that, by the way, is if you think about it, the fire in God's house was never supposed to go out. The fire was always burning, and they were always burning on the altars. They were always offering sacrifices, but think about it, they needed wood for that. They didn't have propane tanks behind the temple. They needed firewood, and so they would have a wood offering, is what it's called, and and they would and people different people would bring in wood at different times of year to supply for the fire in the temple. That never really dawned on me before, but if you think about it, they would have gone through a lot of wood, a lot of firewood. And I really wanted to preach tonight on how it's the responsibility of every member of Eastside to keep the fire going. It's good preaching, it's just not the point of the text. Okay says in verse 35, not that that matters, and, you know, if I wanted to preach it, you'd probably... Okay, and verse 35, and to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruits, a fruit of the all trees, year by year unto the house of the Lord, and also the firstborn of our sons. And you say, wow, they, what? They brought the firstborn of their sons to the priests? Well, this was, when you had a firstborn son, uh, the ceremonial law said that you would redeem that son. So you actually would take that son to the temple and you would give a certain offering 
because God blessed you with a son. And that's, that's all it is. There was no sacrifice going on, and you weren't handing it over to the priest and walking away. It was an offering for the firstborn son. It says, and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstlings of our herds and of our flocks, to bring to the house of God, of our God, unto the priests that minister in the house of our God. And that we should bring the first fruits of our dough and our offerings and the fruit of all manner of trees, of wine and of oil under the priests to the chambers of the house of our God and the tithes of our ground under the Levites, that the same Levites might have the tithes in all the cities of our tillage. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites take tithes and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes into the house of our God to the chambers under the treasure house. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the corn of the new wine and the oil unto the chambers where are the vessels of the sanctuary and the priests that minister and the porters and the singers. And we will not forsake the house of our God. They're getting specific here. And they're, they're talking about revival in specific terms. And I truly believe if revival is going to take place after the amen, it needs to not just be personal, it needs to be practical. We need to truly name specifically the ways that we believe that God will have us be revived. Because in my estimation, and this this is true I know for everyone, if you're not shooting or aiming at a target, you're not going to hit one. And it's very important that we see that revival is practical Thank you for standing. You, may, you can be seated. I appreciate your standing for the honor of God's word here. God's people obviously want revival. They've already reinstated the temple worship. They've built the walls. They're seeking, though, now spiritual revival. And they realize, though, that revival is more than just an emotional church service. When you think about revival, in our, in our terms today, when you say we're having a revival... It's a, it's a revival of emotion. It's a revival of excitement. You know, we're going to have a special meeting and have emotion. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. I'm simply saying that's not the Bible definition of revival. In my estimation, revival um, is a return to Bible truth. It really is that simple. And that revival can happen in any single person's life, in any church service, if they return to, to Bible truth. And it doesn't even have to be in a church service. It can be when you open your Bible in your living room by yourself. If you've God has, if God's spirit works through God's word and speaks to your heart and you return to Bible truth, revival doesn't have to take place in the church house. It can take place in your house. So they've come through this. It has been emotional. They've, they've come through hours of scripture reading. And by the word, God, by the way, God's word changes lives. And I love the fact that God's word plays a huge role in this return and this to Bible truth here. But they've got, they've had some emotional services. They've had hours of scripture reading. They've had lots of confession, lots of fasting, lots of ashes poured on their heads, lots of prayer. And now they know that something needs to be done. The amen has said, has been said, and now change must be produced. So in order to make it mean something, they start by signing the covenant. As we looked at last time, they make it personal. Everyone's willing to do their part. And and I love, look at verse 28, the first phrase. All these men are listed, but it says, and the rest of the people. See, revival takes everyone. Change takes the rest of the people. They don't just apply revival to leadership. 
And this is very important in that uh, we somehow maybe think that the highest standards and the highest qualifications for an organization only apply to those at the top. But I'm telling you, uh, the best churches that I've ever been to or seen at work are when from bottom to top, they all buy in to the qualifications. They all buy into the mindsets that every person is on board and everyone is moving the same direction. And, and I've used this illustration before, but when we were in Washington, um, guess where we ate while we were up there? Chick-fil-A. And you say, big shocker, pastor was eating at Chick-fil-A. No, it was so interesting. We went through the line there and, and, and it was like we were at every other Chick-fil-A we've ever been to. Uh, the, the young, pe- the young lady there was talking to us and I mean, I'm assuming she had smiling eyes at least. I don't know if she was really smiling cause she was wearing a mask, but she, she was smiling. She was happy. She greeted us in the same, with the same terminology you always get greeted with. She's using the same phrases. Um, and she's, she's treating you. It's like you're being at, you've been at every other Chick-fil-A you've ever been at. They're all acting the same way. And I asked Aaron, I said, How is it the same here that it is at every other Chick-fil-A we've ever been to? And I have to think, again, it starts at the top. That those have, they have a mindset that they want to instill. So they train those underneath them. And then those that want to own a store, they train them. And those that own the stores, they hire the employees that are going to get on board with those traits. That how it, that's how it happens from top to bottom. And I'm telling you, revival's not just for the people at the top. And when I say that, I hope you know what I mean. I'm not just saying, I'm not saying there's a pecking order. I'm just saying positionally, we might think, well, the people in leadership or the people on the, on the platform or the people that are leading certain ministries. No, revival is not just for the people at the top. And I would dare say that if all of us committed to the same cause of revival and the same cause of change, that we would see a, a bigger, a greater effect if it was coming from the pews than we would if it was coming from the pulpit. It's contagious. I'm telling you, it's infectious in a good way. So you've got these lists of people. Uh, Every category of people is applying this revival, this change to themselves. You've got the priests. Those are the ones who actually did the altar work. You've got the Levites. Those are the ones that did the rest of the temple work. You've got porters, which those are the doorkeepers. And by the way, uh, I love it when our young boys and our young men stand, stand out front and open the doors for people. I mean, I'd love to see that just be a regular part of what happens at Eastside. That's just the default. We've got some young men out there, and they're always willing to be a doorkeeper. And listen, that's a, you, you young men, that's an important role to play in a church. The whole doors, I'm telling you. You've got singers. Those are the musicians and the singers. You've got nethanims. And those are, these are the temple assistants. The nethanims were, were non-Jewish people that, that, were, that were basically employees or, or if you want to call servants that assisted with every, all the work of the temple, the nethanims. Then he lists wives. And, not, and it's not just a man's responsibility to be revived, by the way. He lists sons and daughters. It's you kids in here. Revival's not just for the grown-ups. It's for you too. You've got. He says everybody at the end of verse twenty-eight. Everyone having knowledge and having understanding. If they were of age to understand what was happening, they were all committing to this covenant. They were not. They were all not maybe signing it, but they were saying we're all in with them. And, and they didn't go, go just say we're all in and then go their separate ways after, after the amen. 
And I think that's what happens sometimes is that we get excited about something and we say, amen, I'm all in. And then we walk out the door and nothing changes. You ever been there before where you get excited or you're moved to do something and yet the next day you realize nothing changed. And see, they didn't just get emotional. They took the time to state the practical ways that they were planning to be all in. And by the way, you know, James chapter 1 talks about being doers of the word and not hearers only. And I think that's there. It's, re, it's there for an important reason because we have a tendency to hear a lot of the word, but we don't tend to apply a lot of the word sometimes. Meaning, I mean, especially people here in that we've got most people in this room are coming Sunday, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And you're hearing the word declared. And sometimes you can hardly take it all in. You can hardly remember all the lessons that you're supposed to learn and all the ways that you're supposed to apply it. And I truly believe that faithful people to God's house are the most likely to be deceived. Because it says that, that if we hear the word, but we don't do the word, then we're like a man beholding our face in a glass and we just go our way and we forget what manner of man we are. It's deception, self-deception. And so I'm trying tonight, this may, you, this may not seem like a significant point to make to you, but I'm trying to get you to understand that if God moves in your heart through his word in a message and he's calling you to return to Bible truth, then you better take some steps to get there. You better make a plan. You better list out the practical ways that you're going to apply. And I don't know how you should do that. I'm not even uh, suggesting there's a way, but, but I'm saying maybe you have something that you, write, that you write in. And every once in a while, you go back and you visit the truths that God has spoken to you about because you don't want to be deceived. That's, this is how practical we need to make it. They, they don't just say, amen, we're all in. No, they say, here's how we're all in. And I want you to see how in this revival, how specific they got. They got specific about spe three areas, and really it could be more, but three areas of revival. They said, we're going to get specific and serious and practical in the area. We need revival first in, in the area of separation. They, they are saying, we are going to be so specific, we're going to name the areas of revival. And the first is in a revival of separation. As we, we already read verses 28 through 30. And the idea here is that they're going to separate themselves from the people of the lands and back to God. Look at verse 20, 29. They claimed to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into the curse. So everyone was represented in those men that signed. They all entered into the curse. They all entered into the oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his judgments and his statutes, and that we would not give our, give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons." See, revival really begins with separation. And, and this morning I preached about Abram and how he had to separate himself from his preferences and follow God's promises and that he had to separate himself from his family and that pagan influence before he could follow God. And I truly believe that the first step in revival is identifying the people, the things, the habits, and the influences in our lives that are most likely to keep us from God. 
See, revival starts with us identifying the things in our lives that will keep us from God. Separation is not just about standards, by the way. And I know separation is not a real popular thing to preach anymore. And, and I'd, be, I'd be called a fundy or something. A fundamental Baptist, those fundies. Or I'd be, you know, be labeled in, I'm an independent Baptist, you know, we're in a cult and all that. No, listen, standards... Uh, standards are, are not just about, uh, separation is not just about standards. Separation, folks, is about anything in our lives that occupies the place where God should be sitting. Separation is about removing anything in our lives that takes the place where God should be occupying. It's not just about outward standards. This is not just about, you know, outward things we're doing. When we separate, when they separated, they were applying it to marriages. Meaning that we're not going to anymore, we will no longer give our sons to the pagan daughters of the land. We're not going to give our daughters to their sons. And in the years of exile, they had grown lax. See what, and I was just reading in Ezra, in my Bible reading this morning, and, and talking about how Ezra had to deal with this. Uh, before, this was years before this in Nehemiah, how when, when everyone was taken into exile, there were certain that were left, the remnant left in the land. And though remnant, there weren't a lot of people to choose from to marry. So they started marrying the people of the land that God had always clearly said, don't marry those. And it become really a blight on the nation of Israel. And just so you know, this is not a racial issue. This is a spiritual issue. Because God knew that if they married the pagans of the land, it would affect their devotion to God. They had already tended to go after idols and other gods. This was about marrying other religions more than it was about marrying other races. That's not the point. The danger was that they would lose their faith due to the influences of the people around them. And you say, well, you know, that can't really happen today. I've seen it happen plenty in Christian lives. Where, it, where, where rather than separate themselves from certain influences in their lives so that they could follow God, they held on to those. And I'm telling you, if you've got a choice between the two and you've got God this direction and, and worldly influences on this side and you hold on to them, I can promise you, you will not end up over there. It always pulls you away. And like it, and you say, well, I'm not sure it would do that to me. No. Well, think about Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. What did he do? He married a bunch of strange women. And by strange, I don't just mean weird. I mean strange as in they were not followers of God. And it turned his heart away. Separation means it's, it's not about what you wear. And it's not, I mean, those things matter. I'm not saying those don't matter. We ought to be salt and light. But that's not what this is talking about. This is separation means total devotion to God. I mean, no matter what the cost, that there's no room for a divided heart if you want revival in your life. And that's the point being made. There should be nothing that we're unwilling to separate from if revival is dependent on it. Separation also is a two-way street. So this wasn't just separating from. Separation includes a two they were separating from and they were separating or, or heading to. See, if a lot of times we think all we think is that separation is about what we're severing. But if we don't replace what we're severing with something else, we'll go right back to it. 
See, they were to separate from the people of the land, and they, it says they made a commitment. They're going to go to the law of God. They're going to follow God's commandments in all ways. And this is a well-known principle, and it deserves repeating. And if you're going to cut something out, you must replace it with something, or you'll go right back to it. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, talk about what I call the put-on and put-off principle. Let me read it to you. And write this down and read it later if you want. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So the principle there is that when you put something off Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. When you put off the old man that was, that was full of lust and full of destruction and you are renewed in the spirit of your mind that then you put on the new man which is Jesus Christ. You replace what you put off with something that you put on. And it would have done nothing for Israel to remove that connection to the people around them if they didn't replace it with their connection with God. They needed to say, yes, we're severing these ties, but we're replacing it with God's word. See, if we sever ties and we leave a hole in our life, we're going to fill it with the next thing that comes along if we don't fill it with God's word. And as you seek revival and you separate yourself from the things in your life that keep you from God, replace them with something godly. Young people, if you've got friends in your life that you need to make a separation from then go ahead with your parents' help, walk through that process and try to limit your contact, but, don't, but, but, but replace the time you were spending with them with somebody else that will be a help to you. Because as you sit there and there's a hole and you're not really hanging out with the people you used to, guess what you're going to find yourself doing? You're, you're going to be going right back to it. It's the same if you've got a habit that you're trying to break, if you're trying to get out of maybe what you're, uh, a certain... Uh, music that you're listening to or or again a certain relationship that you're trying to get out out of you must replace it with something or you'll go right back to it this is friends this is music this is entertainment habits how you spend your free time and it doesn't always have to be sinful it could just be something that's sitting in the place where God should be occupying but I want to encourage you when you're responding to God's word to get specific don't just name the from name the to See, we do well saying, well, I know I don't need to be doing that, but we're not good at stating, I'll replace it with this over here. See, when God prompts you for revival type change, and he says, I want you to return to Bible truth, commit both what you're leaving and what you're replacing it with. Because without specifics, you're aiming for nothing and you're going to hit it every time. And they're, they're taking these steps as a response to truth. Revival is not just emotional, it's practical. It requires this level of detail. And you say, well, I've never really operated like that in a church service or in an invitation. Well, maybe it's time that we stop just generalizing our decisions and we get specific. I want you to notice, too, that the first place they apply separation. It says, it starts here, they're listing wives and sons and daughters. You know, the first place they talk, and then they talk about the marriage relationship. You know, the first place they apply the principle of separation is at home. See, when truth is conveyed, the first two places we should apply truth is in our hearts and in our homes. First two places. Those are the only two that we have any responsibility over. 
You know, I can, I can try to apply a truth in some area at work, but I can't make somebody at work um, sub- submit to my standards, my new standards. Chances are that wouldn't go over very well. But listen, as a dad or as a mom in our families, I think there are too many of us that we hear the message and we hear the preaching, but we leave a gap between the preaching and what it looks like at home. But that may be the area in which we need the most revival. See, the vast majority of our weeks are spent outside the church walls. I mean, much of our lives are lived in the context of our homes. And that means that parents... Folks, you have a, resp- a huge responsibility in applying truth in your family setting. Since, since this is the principle of separation, dads and moms have the responsibility of applying truth to holiness at home. That's what they're doing right here. There must be a connection, folks. And, and just hear me out here. There must be a connection between the preaching of this book and the way our homes operate. Parents, it's the responsibility. It's our responsibility to teach this book to our children. It's also our responsibility to apply it to our children, to help them see how it's lived out. And and we've got to be careful, parents, because if we ignore the preaching or we ignore the application, our children see that. And if what is preached in the pulpit and what is practiced at home, if those things are far enough apart, I'm telling you, it creates a conflict for our children. And as a youth pastor, I dealt with this uh, quite a bit in that the preaching in the pulpit and then the application at home, they were so far apart that it created conflict in the minds of young people. And, and, And in my mind, I started thinking, well, you know, it might be better for uh, that home to find a pulpit that they more closely agree with because the conflict it's creating in their young people are costing them their teenagers, they see the difference in their, and our young people, they're smart, they're, they're insightful. And I'm just encouraging you um, to, to make sure that if you don't have a standard that lines up with the preaching that you hear from this pulpit or from another man that comes in and preaches here, make sure you've got a good biblical reason to explain it to your young people because they're, they're old enough and wise enough to understand if it's biblical or it's not. And it's a, it's a good practice for us to be in. And it also goes with the thought that it undermines our children's view of authority if your spirit is critical to what you hear preached. And I know this seems self-serving, but I, I mean, I spent a number of years telling this to young people and telling this even to their parents that, that your spirit toward the authority that God's placed in your life, as it, is, it does damage if it's critical. To their, it does damage to their view of authority. And, and the, as the older they get, then their view of authority, it starts to come out and, and how they deal with their authority and how they deal with you. And it creates issues. I just want to encourage you to be careful of, the criti- of any kind of criticism that, that you place in, 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 in the direction of the authority, spiritual authority in your life. And that's not for my sake, folks. That's for, that's for our, our young people's sake. Listen, I want to hold on to as many of these as we can. And it's hard enough to convince them that this is the life they need to be living, just living in the culture that we're in. If they see inconsistencies, it just makes it even harder. So they recognize the need for revival of separation and they apply it in their hearts, they apply it at home. But next they see, and this is the next point too, this is, they see a revival of service. 
So a revival of separation, and then they see a revival of service. And this really begins in verse 31. It says, And if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So we see that if the first area was about the personal lives, this area, we would say, could say it's about their spiritual lives. For them, they knew that they needed a revival of how they dealt with the Sabbath. And it starts with the Sabbath. They commit that if someone tries to do business on the Sabbath, they're not going to participate. And I know that looks a little different for us since Matthew 5 states that Jesus has come to fulfill the law. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, Matthew chapter 12 says. But listen, I have a tough time dismissing the idea that God doesn't deserve one day a week of our week. And for us to just dismiss it, I mean, we say, yeah, Jesus Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law and all those things. But I just want to remind you that giving one day a week to the Lord is, is one of the Ten Commandments. And, and I don't know that we can then just say, well, it's a new dispensation. We're in a new covenant. We're in a new testament. And so we don't have to give him one day a week. No, Sunday is the Lord's day. That became the New Testament church practice. They didn't say, well, Christ came to fulfill the law, so we don't have to meet anymore. No, the whole New Testament is written um, from, from the book of Acts on. It's written for churches. And they were meeting together. They were coming together the first day of the week. That was their pattern. And I believe it's a good pra- practice for Christians to continue to give God one day a week. I believe that we need a revival of our service to God, but also of our services for God. You know, we get the other six days a week to do with what we will. And I don't think it's too much to give God most of at least one. I mean, where our focus and our attention is on him and not everything is about like it is the rest of the week. And listen, we're, we're, we're pretty serious about the Lord's day at our house. And I mean, I know it's like this for you. I'm sure many of you in here, like it, you, if you're children woke up and came to your room and said, are we going to church today? You'd be like, what? Like, that's never been a question. I mean, there's no question. I mean, on Wednesdays, our children have never once asked, are we going to church tonight? They just know we are. Sundays and Wednesdays, if the church is open, we're going to be there. And listen, the Lord's day is so important to us that we start preparing for it on Saturday night. Meaning, listen, we're not out real late on Saturday nights. I like the idea of, as a church, limiting the number of activities we have on Saturday nights, especially those that go late, because in my mind, the Lord's day is coming, and I want to be as ready as I possibly can for it. So if you'll notice, I mean, if you come by our house on a Saturday, chances are we're going to be there. Because we start showers at, you know, sometimes you've got to start at like noon to be done by 930. <laughs> Especially when we've got five children and you're trying to take, well, Olivia's gone now. So we, we cut our time in like majorly in half probably. <laughs> but you know, you've got a plan. And if you want to be in bed, listen, you want to, to send the message, parents, to your children that tomorrow is so important that we're not doing anything Saturday night except getting ready for tomorrow. And I think it'd be good for us to have a revival of our view of the Lord's Day. 
I mean, they emphasized the Sabbath. That's the first thing they started doing. They obviously had, be, had started to de-emphasize it during the exile. And listen, revival is not about a special meeting Monday through Friday. I truly believe that revival starts when God's people start viewing his house differently on Sundays and Wednesdays. It's not about the special meeting. It's about making, getting more serious about the time that the church is already coming together. And listen, I know there are many reasons even still that people can't come. And I know that this is a different time. And you, if you have weather and, and, and you're at high risk and people are getting sick, trust me, I understand all of that. But when things are normal, our priority, it should be God's house. Our service, not just the services, our service should be a priority. I mean, how we treat it, how we serve, how faithful we are, how, our commit, how committed we are. Um, I mean, faithful attendance, that's just the baseline. That's where plenty of people are and where plenty of people need to work. But next is faithful service. And I'm asking what areas of service depend on you on a weekly basis? If you have an area, how committed are you to that area? I mean, what and applications of service? I'm just asking teachers, how's your study effort? Musicians, how much do you prepare and practice? Junior church, how prepared are you? Greeters and hall monitors and snow removal. Uh, how diligent are we to know when we're on the schedule? And not just that, but how's your heart towards service? Uh, do, do you need a revival in the way that you view how you're serving God? And they didn't just apply it to the Sabbath. They were, I mean, we could read these, these verses again. We already read them, so I'm just going to refer. They commit themselves to taking care of God's house, not just in serving, but in giving. You know, part of our service is giving. I know I don't get many amens when I start, talk, start talking about giving. You know, there's not, if you're a member at Eastside and you don't regularly give to help take care of the work and to help, to help take care of the house of God, that's neglected service. I mean, all the ways that they were giving, they were, I mean, I could read it again, I'm not going to, but revival of service means a recommitment to giving. And there's no more obvious, you say, well, I'm not sure how big of a deal it is. No, there's no more, according to the New Testament, there's no more obvious expression of your heart for the Lord than how you give. I mean, remember the verse, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So your heart and your treasure are directly commanded or directly connected. And so your level of giving is a reflection of your level of commitment in your heart to the Lord. And I don't preach about giving much, but I, and I, because I just want to say, folks, thank you for faithfully giving. I mean, you give faithfully and it allows our church to take care of what we need to and minister and be a blessing to others on top of it. But does that mean that every person in our congregation gives as they should? Well, probably not. I mean, I don't know. I don't check the giving records. But you know, I'm just telling you from our family, you know, we give 10% of our tithe and we get a, give another percent uh, toward missions. And we also, though, give a third category and that is to the pastor's vacation fund. No, just kidding. No. Should be on every envelope. No, we give to the building too. You know, and as I'm reading, as I'm reading this passage, they they said they, they were they chose not to neglect the house of God. The function of the house of God was something they were thinking about. And you know, now we have a, an incredible building. 
I mean, this is in a beautiful building. And people walk in and they're, I mean, they're just, I just, I think this building reflects that we also serve a great God. Did you know, as a, it'd be a dream as a pastor uh, for us one day to pay our, for our building payment monthly um, out of the giving specifically for the building by God's people. Meaning that we give 10% of our tithe, this is our general giving, but we're so, we're, so, uh, we're so generous and so thoughtful of God's house because it seems pretty biblical to me here in Nehemiah 10 that we give to the building specifically. And listen, I, I mean, and I love I've, giving to missions. We ought to give to missions. It's, it's in the New Testament. It's in the book of 2 Corinthians. We heard all about it in October. But I believe it's just as biblical to give specifically to God's house. And I want to ask you as a steward of this place and as somebody who gets to enjoy this place and who's some of you raising your children right here at Eastside Baptist Church, would you consider adding a third category to your giving and asking God to say, God, how much would you like for our family to give weekly to to help cover the building costs uh, at Eastside Baptist Church? I just think... Man, it's something we ought to all consider. And when I'm reading this, I'm not even giving you a number. I'm not giving you a percentage. I'm, it's a free will offering. But I'm convinced that every family giving specifically toward the house of God is, is biblical. And I want to encourage you. I mean, just the end of verse 39, look at it. It says, we will not forsake the house of our God. And they were giving. And so I'm just asking. There are lots of areas. Is a revival of service needed? What areas of service need to be addressed in your life? Is it the service itself? Is it how you serve? Is it how you give? We need to get specific. So they needed a revival of separation. They needed a revival of service. And finally, and I don't always um, you know, make things um, this symmetrical here. What's the word I'm looking for? I don't always alliterate. But they needed a revival of their spiritual lives. They needed a revival of separation, a revival of service... And a revival of their spiritual lives. Look at verse 33. For the showbread, they're giving for the showbread, for the continual meat offering, for the continual burnt offering of the Sabbaths, of the new moons, for the set feasts, and for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make an atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. They weren't just giving for the function. They were giving so that the offerings and the sacrifices that needed to be made so they could stay right with God could be made. They, they are wanting to make sure that their relationship with God is the basis for everything. You know, it's possible, in maybe, and I don't think I have to tell you this, it's possible to be outwardly and faithfully serving and giving and not be spiritual. I'll say that again, it's possible to be outwardly and physically serving and giving and not be spiritual. Most of us have probably been there. We look the part on the outside. We've got good testimonies and we're serving and we're here every week and we're committed and we're in our place and even, we're even posting about it on Facebook. Hashtag blessed to serve. Hashtag look at me. Okay, I'm going to move on. Truth is, all the stuff on the outside isn't revival unless the heart's right. See, a collapse is coming in your spiritual life if you operate that way long enough. I I read a story a couple months ago about um, a dam in Southern California built in the 1920s by a man named William Mulholland. And maybe you've heard of him. He's an architect. 
and, uh, and a, a big influence there in, in the Los Angeles area. They built a dam just north of Los Angeles in the 1920s. And halfway through the project, they decided to build the dam higher or taller than it was originally. But they didn't adjust the foundation. So they built it taller, but they didn't adjust the foundation. And after just a couple of years, one night, 12 hours after Mr. Mulholland walked through the dam and gave it and signed off and said, everything looks good. 12 hours later, it flooded. And from there, it went 50-something miles all the way down through Valencia and Santa Paula and Ventura. I've got family in Santa Paula. It went all the way through 50-something miles to the ocean and killed 400-and-something people that night. This massive wall of water and just swept people out into the ocean. And the problem was that they, they, they gave the okay for the dam to be built taller, but they didn't make the foundation any bigger and it was unstable. And I do think that's how a lot of our Christian lives are. See, we're really good at, on the outside going bigger and being more impressive and yet our foundation, if it's not built any stronger, there's a collapse coming. And I'm just telling you, if we don't have a revival of our spiritual lives, and we try to go have a revival of service and a revival of our separation, we will eventually collapse. It all starts with your walk with God. Your relationship with God is where it all begins. It is the essence of revival. And I'm not going to spend much time on this one, but it's the most important. You can't do the other things right if this one isn't right. Your internal relationship with God is the engine that drives your external service. Both of them matter to God. Now, let me just say this. Some people might say, well, it's the heart that counts. That's what the Bible says. The outside, though, they say doesn't matter. But that's not true. See, much of the New Testament deals with our behavior and it deals with how we're supposed to be living. The outside does matter to God. He does care what we do on the outside and act like and speak like and how we live. But the inside matters too. And he's not saying the outside doesn't matter at all as long as the heart's right. No, he's saying if the heart is right, the outside should reflect that. The heart is the most important piece, but the rest should follow. And so I'm asking you today, how's your spiritual life? Of all the things we need to be revived in, how's your walk with God? Are there areas of sin that you've let linger in your life and it's affecting your walk with God, but it's tough and you just can't seem to beat it, so it just lingers? Is your walk with God consistent? Do you have daily time? Are you closer today than you were last year? And I'm just saying that we've got to think about this area or else we're like the St. Francis Dam and, and we're going higher and we're more impressive. And yet if our foundation is weak, someday it will all come crashing down. Our relationship with God is the essence of revival. And if there's any place that we need revival, it's in our spiritual lives. Because frankly, it's easy, easier not to be spiritual. Have you ever figured that out? It's kind of easier just to walk in the flesh and, and to live according to our, what we see and not by faith. That's the easiest way. But I'm telling you, there's a collapse coming if we stay there long enough. So to make it practical means you stop being general in your decisions. So I'm going to just go through this and we'll be done. I'm, I know I'm preaching a while, but I was gone last Sunday and making up for lost time. <laughs> I did have somebody this week try to convince me. 
that the longer you preach, the more you discipline people's minds to sit and take in truth for longer periods of time. So, you know, I'm just going to try that for a while here. It's like a, a groan throughout the congregation. So here's what we do, though. A lot of times in, in, in our decision-making, we say, yes, I want revival. Yes, I want to be better in my spiritual life. I need to get closer to God. Yes, I need to be separated. Yes, I need to revive, revival in my area of service. And, and you might tonight be saying, yes, I need revival in my spiritual life. It's a great decision, but what does that look like tomorrow? What does it literally look like? And you say, uh, okay, okay, I, I, I want to be closer to God. Okay, but how measurable is that? What do you mean by closer? Does that mean you sit closer to the front of the sanctuary? Does that mean that you walk on stilts this week so you're closer to God? Does it, does it mean that you duct tape a, a little kid's Bible to your forehead when you go to work tomorrow? Great idea. I mean, being a good testimony... But, I mean, what does it mean to say, I want to be closer? No, you've got to get more specific. Here's how we, we need to approach revival decisions for change. I want to be closer to the Lord. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and shower first thing. And by 645, I will be sitting in my recliner. That lamp will be on. And I will already be on my second or third cup of coffee. Mike Steen, right, Brother Mike? And every morning, listen, every morning, that's my plan. I'm going to be right there. And I will finish around 7.15. After that, then I will spend some time in prayer. I need to leave by 7.40 to get to work. Because, and th but this is my plan. See, to say I want revival and I want to be more spiritual, that's one thing. But if you really want to see it happen, you've, it's time to get specific. And, I say, and you say, well, why is this significant? Because that's what they're doing. This, this passage is about people that want to get closer to God, but they know it's not enough to say, Lord, help us be more spiritual. They're saying, here's how we're going to be closer to God. We're going to separate ourselves from the people that occupy the place where he should be sitting. And we're going to, we're going to dedicate ourselves to be better at serving. And we're going to make sure that our walk with God, our spiritual life, that we want to make sure that we take steps to make sure that the altars can still be burning so that our spiritual life can be right. They got specific about it. And it's time for us not to just pray and not to just respond, but to get specific about a plan when God speaks to our heart. I mean, it's not about, oh, I need to be, I need revival in my service. No, you say, well, I just, I just need to be a better teacher. No, that's not specific enough. I mean, it just, um, specifically, say, no, by Monday night at 8 o'clock, I will have my outline, my bare bones outline and my thought and my direction done. Tuesday nights, I'll work on my object lesson and, or, or my illustrations. On Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, I'll fine-tune the lesson and be ready by 9.30 or 10. And on Sundays, if I'm going to be a better teacher, I'm going to get here 15 minutes before class starts because that's what the policy states, by the way. All children's ministries... It's a good idea to have teachers and helpers in the class 15 minutes before. And I don't think that should apply just to children's ministry. I think it's a great practice for every teacher. You want to be there when the students come in or when the people in your class come in so you can greet them. If they're young, you need to monitor them. If they're boys, you need to put them in straight jackets until the helper gets there. You know. You know, you want to greet them. I'm telling you, there's some good fellowship time done 15 minutes before class starts. There's good ministry done before that. And, and, and shame on us if we're teachers coming in after class starts. 
Teachers and helpers, be there early, 15 minutes. And listen, if you're going to be a better teacher, if you're going to be a better minister in your class, then, then you be there early and you greet them by name. And then the next week you say, you know, I'm going to reach out to at least one class member or maybe two. The bigger the class, reach out to more. Because every week I want them to know I'm not just their teacher on Sunday. I love them Monday through Saturday too. Listen, this is how you build relationships. This is how you build classes. This is how you become a better teacher. It's not just about God help me be a better teacher. No, here's my plan to be a better teacher. Revival change is not emotion. It's responding to truth by inserting practical, specific details into my day. Revival is not as far away as we think. We simply need to confront the areas of our life that need it the most, like separation in service, in spirituality. We need to get specific if we're going to see change and ask questions like, in what ways does this truth apply to me? What does this truth look like at home? What does it look like at work? What one thing is preventing me from seeing this change take place in my life? What one step could I take tomorrow? What does it look like at its end? And you say, well, that's so specific. Exactly. That's so practical. Yes, it is. Revival, I truly believe, revival is practical. It's not some inward moving of emotion only. It's a practical expression of change. I'm going to say that again. Revival is practical. It's not just an inward moving of of emotion. It's a practical expression of change. And they went to serious detail to make sure that the application of this service was specific. I heard a story about a man in a church and he would pray often at the end of every service and he would say, Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life. One of the members of the church became weary of hearing that prayer every time because in his mind, the guy wasn't changing enough. So the next time he heard the man pray, Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life, he quickly added, and while you're at it, kill the spider. You know, and I think sometimes we're focused on the cobwebs, but we've got to get specific and it's time to so it's time to focus on the spider. We're really good at saying this needs to happen in a general sense, but it's time to get specific about revival. This whole passage is about people that want change and they know they have to get specific to get there. So I'm asking you tonight if what one thing What one thing, what does this truth look like in your life? What one thing is preventing you from seeing change? What one step could you take tomorrow? What's your plan? Not just how are you moved. What's your plan? It's one thing to seek revival. It's another to actually see it happen. It's not emotional response to truth. It's an accurate self-examination in the areas of our life where change is needed most. It's time to get specific. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. This may be more of a mindset kind of a message, but I do think that this kind of message should impact every time we respond at invitation. Are you tired in your life of hearing messages and never, never seeing change? Well, maybe it's because your approach to responding to God's word hasn't been very specific. It hasn't been very practical. 
And maybe it's time that, that we stop generalizing our walk with the Lord and generalizing our service and generalizing our Christian lives and start getting specific. Again, I know this may be a harder type message to respond to, but I do think that this truth should impact every invitation. It should impact every time we read God's word. It should impact us every single time that a truth comes to us and exposes something in our lives that need to be changed. It's time to get specific because if we don't get specific, we'll never see change. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth. Lord, I thank you for the attention your fo- these folks gave. And I, I thank you for their, um, their, just their desire um, to, to seek you and to, to know truth and to hear God's word. Lord, I pray that you would help this message to make a difference, to make an impact in how we respond to truth. And Lord, I, I, I do think that more than just uh, we need to make more specific decisions, God, I do think there are some in here that need a revival of separation in their lives. There's something, uh, something occupying their heart where you should be. And I happen to believe there's probably somebody that needs a revival of service. They've been doing it for years, and they're a little bit worn out, and it's not really very fun to them. They're not very passionate. God, there needs to be a revival of service. I do think there's probably some in here that need a revival in their spiritual lives. They're not where they need to be. And God, to see any of these things changed, it's time to get specific and practical. Father, work as you will in our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.